If you would, turn to the book of Ruth tonight. Four chapters, 85 verses, but packed with a great message. Some of you would be able to tell me, where does this line come from? Ready? It was the best of times and the worst of times. Tale of two cities by Charles Dickens. Yes, that's right. You could say that the book of Judges, which Ruth comes right after, because it's the same time period, in some ways it was the best of times because God did some great things. But definitely you could say it was the worst of times. And that's what we're going to look at tonight because providence does this. It tells us, and it means this, that God controls both. He, he controls all the things in our life during the best of times, which is not hard to admit, but he also controls providentially in the worst of times. The book of Ruth basically teaches us that God brings calamities and sorrows of life under the sway of his sovereignty. And in all things, God is working his purposes for our good. So let me say it to you this way. Life is not a straight line leading from one blessing to the next and then finally to heaven. If you think that once you get saved that it's a smooth path all the way to glory, you're going to be very disappointed. Rather, life is more like a winding and troubled road. When I went to Panama a few years ago, uh, we, we, set, we set out one day in two different groups. And one was a van that we were in, and another group did a work detail. And I was thinking, like, wow, this is going to be so much fun, and, you know, those guys will be working really hard, and we'll be in here having a great time. It turned out to be the opposite. <laughs> well, they said, Ray, Pastor Ray, got to bless his heart, he said it would be about an hour, maybe two-hour drive. For four and a half hours later, we finally arrived. But, we, but all the way up the mountains in Panama, not a lie, it was like this, up this thing, like this, and it was back and forth. We, it was so twisty and turny. We were in this big van that one of our group actually threw up in the van. That's how much it was. It was hot. It was, it, it was in the road. I'm telling you, we thought it was going to be smooth getting there. And it was anything but smooth. It was long, it was hot, it was twisty, it was not good. And it was kind of crazy though. So we finally got there and we were supposed to see this new church plant. They had a building and everything, but someone forgot to tell the people who ran the building. So we went all that way and it was locked and we couldn't even get in. We didn't see anybody. We got back in and went home. <laughs> so it wasn't the greatest nine hours I've ever spent on the road. Um, but that's life. Isn't it in, in, in a nutshell? You know, sometimes you think you're going to go under. It's not smooth at all, and the ending isn't that great either. Um, but you know what the book of Ruth teaches us? Like Joseph last time, it wants us to know and believe that in the midst, in the midst of all of our twists and turns, that God is doing more than just showing up to clean up after all the mess takes place. He's doing way more than that. And rather, God is plotting and working and managing, remember our, our poem by, by William Cooper? His bright designs, his bright designs. They weren't random, they're not meaningless. All of the providences in our life have far-reaching purposes 
and they're reaching for our good and God's glory. So God's frowning providences, I wrote down in my notes for my own benefit at first, are not the last word. They're never the last word. God allows and ordains and designs frowning providences. And if we went through the auditorium, it wouldn't be just Mr. Ventura that could name a providence he wasn't expecting, right? All of us, all of us have experienced them. And you're going to see tonight, as we look at Naomi's life, and I'm going to just counteract not to be flippant or anything, but it really almost could be better... Not the book of Ruth, but really the book of Naomi, although Ruth is, Ruth is obviously a major character. And I'm going to show you why, because the whole book is from beginning and at the end is a story about, that, about Ruth's, I mean, Naomi's reversal and how it starts off so bad, so bad, and everything goes wrong. Everything comes crashing down in her life. You ever had times like that? And then in the end, everything, kind of like Job everything, and, and Joseph, and everything at the end is reversed. Remember what the poem, remember again, William Cooper said, the, the things that we so much, the clouds we so much dread shall break with mercy on your head. Remember that? We dread them, but yet God takes them and uses them, orchestrates them, and turns them around for our blessing. So Naomi's life asks the question, excuse me, that we need to answer tonight, <clears throat> and that is this. Can I trust and love God who has dealt this painful hand to me in my life. Can I trust him? The book of Ruth is going to help us answer the question, yes. So God is at work in the worst times of our lives, as Dickens would say, not just the best. Chapter 1, verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. Well, we learn a lot of things. We learn about when this took place. This, this story takes place around the book of the Judges. It was about a 400-year span, and that was right after the conquest of Canaan. Joshua dies off the scene, and we have the book of Judges. There are no kings. Twice in 17.6 and 21.25 it says that there were no kings yet, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. This is the situation and spiritual climate that's taking place. It is the worst of times. Um, they had experienced a lot of blessing under Joshua. But when he passed off the scene, uh, they went in and out of cycles of sin and idolatry. About every 30 to 40 years, a deliverer, which we call a judge, would have to be raised up by God to deliver them out of slavery and out of their oppression. And if you look at the book Leading up to it, in the book of Judges, and leading up to Judges, and even its introductory comments, you'll find that if you looked at it by all outward appearances, it would look like God is not having his way, and that his promises and his purposes are failing. And everything that he had designed is not going to come to pass. It looks like that. But we found out last time in Joseph, and I want to show you again tonight, because I want to kind of push a really important truth, and I, I preach as much as I can about it. And that is that God's providence works on two levels. Let me write, if you write them down, <clears throat> like last week. God's providence works on a macro level, and that's the big story he's doing. <clears throat> and he works on a micro level, and that's personally. So write down, macro level is what he's doing on a national scene. Micro level is what he's doing on a personal scene. God does both. And, don't miss it, those two things are connected. 
Let me show you what I mean. Macro level, turn to the end of the book. We're going to start there. Anybody watch movies or read books the end before they read the rest of it? Anybody do that? Shameful. This is how the book reads at the end. Ruth 4, 18 through 22. A little genealogy, which we mostly skip over because we think they're of little to no value. And in this book in particular, but almost every time a genealogy is used, it's of prime importance. It says, now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Amenadab. Amenadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. David, in the Hebrew, is, as it is in English, the very last word of this text. Why does that matter? Because what this book is about beyond Naomi and Ruth's personal tragedies and difficulties and God delivering and redeeming them out of them, that's the story we mostly con- we put our mind to and focus on. But what we're doing and what God is doing is he's using one family and some of their really, really bad choices, some really frowning providences that he brings into their lives, how they respond to it, how God uses and works around to bring, remember, Judges have no king. God is going to bring the king into Israel. Not just any king. He is going to bring David, who would be the archetype of all the kings who would, everyone would be compared to him. And then ultimately, he is the king, David is. But ultimately, if you read Matthew 22, Jesus himself would identify himself as the son of David. So ultimately, this story is not just, and by the way, let me say it nicely, and neither is your story and all the frowning providences and all the twists and turns on the road that you take and all the things that you're facing, they are not, can I say it, they are not primarily about you. All the things that took place in Naomi and Boaz's and Ruth's life were mainly about what it would take to keep the Messianic line intact, bring David into the world And through him, eventually, the Lord Jesus Christ, who would be the picture of the greatest redemption of all time. That's what Ruth's life and her story, how it fits into the big story of God. So David is the key in what God is trying to do and bring into this. So I would tell you this. Don't waste the worst times that you face. We're all going to have best of times, and we're all going to have worst of times. Do not waste them. Do not try to simply avoid them, escape them at all costs. Because what God brings in your life, remember what John Newton said, we said from his letters last time? Everything that God sends into your life, every providence is necessary, and everything which God withholds is unnecessary. Everything in Naomi and Ruth's life that God brought was absolutely necessary. Here's a hard pill to swallow, including the death of her husband, the death of her two sons, unbiblically marrying two Moabitess women. It was all absolutely necessary. Not all of it was right, but all of it was necessary. And you know that because in the big picture, you open the book of Matthew, 
which starts off about the son of David at the very first verses of it and ends with Jesus, the son of David. And in his genealogy, there is a prostitute and a Moabitess by the name of Ruth and Rahab. Rahab is the mother of one of these guys in the end of the genealogy who was the, the relative of Boaz. So all the genealogy, so even back further, watch the big picture, they've captured Jericho. Rahab is the only one that helps them out. He's, the Bible says that they save her and all of her family. She, it says, immediately joins in the community of Israel. She gets married to a Jewish guy who becomes one of the people who has children. And that child eventually is Boaz. And God reaches the world through that. So your little life and my little life and all the little things that we go through on a daily basis, the big ones and the small ones, all have incredible significance and purpose. Why? Because God is writing a story, his story, on the pages of your life and everything in your life is meant to glorify God. So don't waste your worst times. When they come your way, ask God, how do you want me to respond that would best glorify you and best tell your story? None of them are random. Again, William Cooper, judge not the Lord by feeble sense. In other words, don't say in your own little mind, I don't know how God could ever use this. Cooper says, judge not the Lord by feeble sense as if nothing good could come out of it. But trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. Your worst of times, just like Naomi and Ruth, are the foundation that God is building your greater happiness in the future upon. He's building it all on those things. So here's what God does in our provinces. And you have to do this because if you, let me tell you again, if you don't see the macro level, you will not understand the micro level. If you disconnect it from the big story, you will think it's all about your story. And you will question, you will wonder why, and you'll never be, why would God bring this in? And it will make absolutely no sense. But if you are every day living in the big story of God, you will understand the patterns of that story and how suffering comes before glory and all the things that God teaches about the story. And you'll be able to work it through and see what God's invisible hand is doing. But it's not just as important as it is the macro level. He does work on a personal level, the micro level, our level. And that's why I had you turn, if you'll go back to chapter 1 of Ruth. Naomi, her name means pleasantness. By the end of chapter 1, she asks for a name change. Mara, and you remember that Israel went to the, the waters of Mara because they were bitter, and they, had, they were basically, you couldn't drink them because they were, had bad stuff in it, right? She says, I want you to know that I'm going to be changed. I'm not pleasant anymore because I'm bitter. And she says, because of what God is doing in my life. It was difficult, and she wasn't very successful at the beginning in responding to how her frowning providences were working in her life because she could not 
and I would say refused to see herself and how she fit into the big story of God. Now, the hard part about it is, in her life and in ours, is the same that took place with Joseph. Joseph had to, if I could say, be patient, endure, frowning providences like Naomi did, one after another, over and over. Joseph had to endure that, we said, for 13 years. He got to Egypt when he was 17. He got exalted when he was 30. So for 13 years, including crimes he didn't commit, being a slave, thrown in prison, years he was forgotten, on and on and on, he had to wait he had to accept the founding property. But if you see Joseph and read 45 of Genesis verses 5 through 8 and a number of other places, chapter 50 verses 19 and 20, you will have to know this. The way that he kept away himself from bitterness is because he saw God's invisible hand in it. It's not you that sent me here, his brothers, he said. It was God who sent me here. Read Psalm 105, verses 16 and 17 and sometimes, and you'll know that down to the detail, that's how Joseph saw his life. Naomi did not have that perspective at first, although she did see God's hand in it. But let me tell you, and this is what we'll have to watch out, she didn't see his hand for anything but negative. Verse 1 a famine comes. These are a series of setbacks for her. Frowning providences, one at a time. And it says a famine came. Now, you have to understand that in biblical times, everybody knew, everybody knew. Um, this is the time of Judges. Everyone had, had know, knows Leviticus. And you might think that's the book I know the least. But back then, they didn't have that many books. And so they knew them well. And Leviticus says... If you read it in chapter 26, it says that if you obey my commandments, then God will cause it to rain and rain abundantly and at the right times, and he will make everything grow and be fruitful, and you have all the food. I'm trans, this is my translation. And you will have everything that you need. Everybody knew that. Everybody knew if you had a famine in Israel, we know exactly where it comes from, God. <laughs> right? In other words... Know this, Naomi, God is sovereign over the rain. He is. Hold your finger here, or just listen to me, maybe better. Job 37, just listen. How do you keep yourself living in the big story? How do you see things the way that you should see them in your life? It's because you see it in little things. So same way in how you teach yourself about how God is satisfying so that when you eat your favorite steak, you leave a little bit of it on the plate and you whisper to God that no one else hears, you're better than that. And you're better than books and you're better than technology and you're better than vacations. And when you're having those things in your life, you whisper to God and you tell him, you're better than this. You're way better than this. And you keep telling yourself that and you give up little things and you don't choose certain things. Why? Because you're learning, teaching yourself that he's better. Now, how do you do that in the area of providence? Job 37, verse 13 reads, whether for, whether for correction or for his land or for love, he causes it to happen. And that, what he's talking about is rain. Do you hear that? Here's his purposes for rain if it doesn't happen. He withholds rain if he's correcting his land 
if he loves his people, either way, he causes it to happen. 37.6, for to the snow, he says, fall on the earth, likewise to the downpour, his mighty downpour. So do you hear that? So when he says, out of the treasure houses of, his, uh, of snow, when he causes it to come down a little bit of snow, or he comes in heavy doses of snow, God says, see, look outside and say, not it's just it's beautiful, but that's God's hand. See, he is sovereign over snow. He is sovereign over rain. Chapter 38 and verses 25 through 29. Let me read it to you. Who has cleft a channel for the torrents of rain and a way for the thunderbolt to bring rain on a land where no man is, on the desert in which there is no one. When there's no one around and it's in the desert, nobody can see, he brings rain. Why? Because he controls it, whether you see it or whether you know it or not. To satisfy the waste and desolate land and to make the ground sprout with grass. Hear me, ready? Has the rain a father? Who has begotten the drops of dew? Not mountain dew, water. He says, God does. Do you hear what he says? God says. Do you see the news tonight? May has been the biggest, driest month of May all the way since back in the 1800s. We have had so little rain Maybe more little in Philadelphia, but it's been a very, very dry. How is that possible? Because God said so. God said so. I'm watching the news tonight, and I'm saying, like, look at the invisible hand of God. I wonder what that's going to mean, that we've had so little rain in May. It's going to mean something. It's going to be correction. It's for love, but it's all under his control. And I can tell you this. Naomi knew what the famine was all about. She knew the causes But listen, do you know what her husband does? By the way, judges had no king. Elimelech, her husband who died, his name means my God is king. (laughs) David became the king and Jesus was the king of kings. So I can tell you, this whole story is about who will be king and who will really live as if Jesus is king. Elimelech's name means my God is king. He did not practice it because when God the king was in control of famine, he didn't stay in Israel where the only place God promised to bless. He left and he ran and he went to Moab. You know why? Because he thought he could do it without God. You know why? Because Elimelech didn't see the story. And I would tell you this much, he didn't want to see the story. And when his world came crashing in and Naomi's world came crashing in, he didn't see God's hand. David Hart wrote an article called Treasures of Doubt in the Wall Street Journal in 2004. He was commenting on the tsunami that took place in um, I forgot this, Sri Lanka, thank you, um, in 2004 and the thousands of people that were dead because of it. He writes this, Wall Street Journal, no Christian is licensed to utter odious banalities about God's inscrutable counsels or his blasphemous suggestion that all of these mysteries all work together for our good. He calls them blasphemy. He calls them banalities. It's something that's empty. He says they're worthless. You can't just look at the world and all the evil and suffering and say, well, God's got it all under control. He wouldn't buy any of that. 
Because he doesn't know God, nor does he have a story that God would recommend. Let me tell you a different story and a different account. Let me contrast it. In April 20th of 2001, the Peruvian Air Force thought they were shooting down a drug smuggling smaller plane. They didn't realize that it was a missionary plane. Kevin Donaldson was the pilot, and the missionary family he was flying were the Bowers, Jim and Veronica Bowers. And in the plane were their two little children, Corey, who was six, and Charity, who was seven months old. Veronica was in the back of the plane holding Charity on her lap when the Air Force, the Proving Air, mistakenly began shooting bullets at their plane. They sprayed the entire plane. I mean, bullets were coming through the plane everywhere. One of those bullets entered Veronica's back from the back of the plane. And through her back and through her little daughter Charity that she was holding, instantly they both died. The pilot, his knees were completely smashed. Eventually he would land the plane on the water, they would get out of the water, barely, make it to the shore, barely, and have someone came by and help them to get to the shore, believe it or not, in a canoe. And the last three of the people, including the pilot, would be saved and survived. The funeral for Veronica, who was only 30-something years old, was a week later, Jim Bauer, the husband, the missionary, gave this testimony at his wife's funeral. And he explained everything from the, perp- from the perspective of God's sovereignty and his providence. It was his worst of times. After saying a number of words, he came to this point. He says, and I quote, Most of all, I want to thank God. He is a sovereign God. Some of you might ask, Why would you thank God? Could this really be God's plan, he calls his wife, for Ronnie and Charity and your family? He says, it absolutely is, and let me tell you why I believe that. And in his funeral, he went on to list, and I have them all in front of me. He gave 15 reasons, and he said he had many more, but he chose these 15 15 reasons why his wife and daughter's death was God's sovereign providence. Listen to what he says. Of the many bullets that penetrated the aircraft, not one of them hit Corey or me. Despite the fact that one of the first ones made a big hole in the windshield in front of my head, right next to my head, blew out the windshield, coming from behind, none of them incapacitated the pilot. He said, the fire extinguisher worked, and some as, same on my boat back home. He said, it rarely ever does, and it hardly ever worked on the plane. That day, it did. If it did not, we all would have died. Ronnie and Charity were instantly killed by the same bullet. You would say it was a stray bullet. I would not. And it didn't reach Kevin, who was right in front of them, one foot in front of them, because the bullet stopped in his daughter's chest. He says, 
That is a sovereign bullet. Despite major damage to Kevin's legs, the pilot, he was able to bring us safely onto the river, and though we were far from the river when it started. I had just enough time and just enough strength to get Ronnie and Charity's bodies that were dead out of the aircraft before it went under the water. And although we floated in the river for quite a long time, we would not have made it except a canoe came by and got us. We were shot down over a town of witnesses, which helped very much to prove that we weren't drug smugglers. And some of those people were actually friends that he had made. Incredibly, the town that they went to for help after they got back on the land had a radio. And the radio actually worked. We were able to call and people actually answered. (laughs) He says, amazing. He says, if you think it's by chance... It's not. He says, only a sovereign God could do all of that. What a difference, right? Between that and the Wall Street Journal and his view. You know why? Because Jim Bowers and his family were living out God's story as missionaries. That's how they lived their lives every single day. I love that phrase. It was a sovereign bullet. In Ruth's life and Naomi's life, That was the first thing, famine. It was a sovereign famine. By the way, it's sovereign cancer. It's sovereign difficulties with your health. It's sovereign unemployment. It's sovereign, and you put the word behind it. Because God is in control of all of it, even the choices that we make that we shouldn't. And that's what happened in the second frowning providence. It says in verse 1, they went and stayed in Moab, but the word in the, in, the, the, in the Hebrew is sojourn. They went to Moab and they thought that they would only be there for a little while. That's what a sojourn is, a small, short while. But if you read down a few more verses, they ended up staying there for 10 years. It was a huge mistake. They left Bethlehem, Bethlehem the house of bread, because it had no bread, to Moab, a place that had nothing. Nothing but trouble. And every time we run away from God, every time we try to take and and solve our own frowning provinces and our own wisdom and our own strength, it only causes worse worse tragedies. During those 10 years, all the other tragedies began to take place. Her husband died. Her sons married Moabitess women who were known to be the enemy of God for centuries and was not right by the Levitical law to do, but they did it anyways. And for 10 years, the Bible says they had no children, that Ruth and Orpah were barren. And I believe it's because they were married to the wrong people unbiblically. Their two sons die. Mahon, his name means sickling, and Chilion, his name means weakling. And they lived and died according to that name. How does Naomi respond? How would you respond? And I'll close with this. Look at chapter 1, verse 13. She's trying to convince these two Moabitess girls to go back home. Would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters. Listen to what she says. It is exceedingly bitter, underline that, to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. See, she only sees 
frowning providences is something that should never have happened. I would like to get rid of them. I don't embrace them, and I certainly don't see their value. She says, go back. Why would you want to hitch anything to me? <laughs> anything at all. Mark it down, please. Bitterness causes blindness. It does. Bitterness causes blindness to God's goodness. You cannot see what God is doing. You cannot see he's working good, not just evil or negativity in your life. How do I know that? Look at chapter one and verse 20. And she said to them, don't call me Naomi, pleasantness. Call me bitterness, Mara, for the almighty El Shaddai. See, she says, God's power, he's using it against me. And again, for the second time, he has dealt very bitterly against me. Now look at, in the Bible, God changes people's names at momentous times. Simon becomes Peter, right? Abraham, Abram becomes Abraham, Sarai, Sarah, and you know the whole story. God goes from Jacob, Israel. You know all those stories, right? God gives you a new name, and it's always for the better because it's a positive change in your life. It's not God changing her name. She's changing her name. You know why? Because she's bitter and thinks that she's in control of all of her circumstances. And she's not changing her name for good. It's for worse. Because, listen, she has allowed herself, hear me, she's allowed herself to have her identity be her circumstances. And it has made her bitter. She has defined herself by what God is doing in her life, not by God himself. Even her name, she messes up, and then she calls God El Shaddai, all-powerful, but she can't see that he might be powerful enough to be doing great things behind the scenes. She cannot see his smiling face behind the frowning providence. Mark it down. That is not the characteristic of a wise and godly woman Proverbs 31.25 says this about the wise, godly woman. She laughs at the time to come. She sees the horrible things coming, but she's prepared. She's ready for it. She laughs at it. Why? Because she knows that God is in control and that she can laugh at it. See, here is Naomi's bitter about it. <laughs> this woman the Proverbs woman, she's not bitter. She's laughing at it because she can, because she goes, God's in control. God, by the end, turns everything around. The book starts off with death, but it ends with life because a baby is born. And remember, Ruth had been barren for 10 years. Now the Lord, according to chapter 4, if you want to turn there as we close, verse 11 she now, God says, and the Lord has given her the ability to conceive. He opens her womb because she has made the change in whose story she's living in. And the women around her say, may you be like, listen, may you be like Rachel and Leah, 4.11. Rachel, the one who was barren for the longest time, but when she got her act together and God blessed her, he gave her a son. May you be like that. Now, here's the last thing I want to say. In chapter 4 and verse 17, it reads this. There is a son born to Naomi. Now, isn't that funny? Because it wasn't born to Naomi. Who was the son born to? 
Ruth, but she isn't the main character. It's Naomi, because here's what the writer wants you to see. Naomi's story at the beginning was all barrenness, death, and bitterness. And now at the end, she has been blessed. She has been given a son. Ruth got the baby, but it's really the story of Naomi that we're telling. Why? Because God has done a complete reversal in her life. Can I, can I tell you this? Listen to this in your life. God's setbacks are really set-ups. God's setbacks are really set-ups. He wants to tell you that his frowning providences are not the last word. They are the first word. And God's using them because he's got good things in store for us. God does not fill people. And Naomi says, at the end, I went away full and I came back empty. Chapter 1. Chapter 4. Now I am full when I used to be empty. Go home tonight and think this in your life. If you come to God full, you will always leave empty, especially if you're full of yourself. But if you come to God empty, if you come to God empty and say, you pick up, here's the pen, you write my story, you will leave full every time. It's the story of God's providences. And we have to look at it and we have to see it the way Jim Bowers saw it, the way Naomi eventually saw it in our lives, her life as well. I want to close with the very song that we sang at the beginning. We're not going to sing it. We're going to listen to it. It's a little southern gospel, if you like that or not. Um, he leadeth me. Listen to how they sing it. It's beautiful together as well. But again, listen to the words and think about how is God leading me?